0: Hi, this is Gary Habermas, I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here, and I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on many occasions, and over the years I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions and I highly recommend his program. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you
1: further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You so keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deep
2: waters.
1: Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we are talking about, uh, about atheism. Atheism on trial, in fact. And to do that, we've got Luis Marcos here from HBU. He is... Dr. Lewis Marcos is professor in English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. He's the author of 17 books, including Apologetics for the 21st Century. He has delivered hundreds of lectures worldwide on topics such as Apologetics, classical Christian education, C.S. Lewis, and Dante, and is known for his ability to make complex topics easy and enjoyable to learn. So, um, Dr. Marcos, welcome back to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be back. Now, if my audience doesn't remember much about you, can you tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing?
0: Wow. Well, I, I, I'm, I live in Texas now. I actually grew up in New Jersey. I went to Colgate in upstate New York, then University of Michigan, in Michigan, of course. And since 1991, I've been teaching down at Houston Baptist University 27 years. And what's wonderful is, you know, I've always been uh, passionate about apologetics. I'm a C.S. Lewis person and always wanted to do that, love that. And my school has always been a Christian school, but over the last, oh, about seven or eight years, we've gotten more and more intentional about apologetics so that we now actually offer a master's online of apologetics. Uh, And so Atheism on Trial is sort of the accumulation of so much reading I've done and literature and philosophy and history. And one thing I always love to do in my classes and my books is take that sort of interdisciplinary approach where you draw together from literature, philosophy, history, theology, even sometimes the arts and music, drawing them together uh, to make those connections and to understand sort of intellectual history in all of its factors. And what's wonderful about this to me, Nick, is, you know, I went to all secular schools, and when you go to secular schools, you have this idea that, you know, Christianity is somehow backward or it's only about feelings and emotions. but actually the great intellectual tradition in the Western world is very much a Christian tradition and even when you have the best of the ancient pagans like a Plato or Aristotle, you're still dealing with ideas that are pointing towards the fuller revelation of Christ. So again, in my teaching I want to draw together, make those connections and a book like Atheism on trial, has allowed me to pull together all of my passions and, and make the connection and show how, as it says about Jesus in the Bible, in him all things consist. It draws it all together.
1: And I would like to say we do have some people now listening live on Facebook Live. So if you have a question for our guests anytime during the show, feel free to leave a question and I'll see if I can get to it on that. I can't make promises. <laughs> Now, this book, Atheism on Trial, is pretty much one of the things that people might be surprised about is atheism is
0: really nothing new, is it? It really isn't. In fact, my original title for the book, which is now the title of the introduction, is Nothing New Under the Sun. But I couldn't resist such a great title as Atheism on Trial that my publisher suggested. But Nothing New Under the Sun, the sort of thesis what drove me to write this book (laughs) Is we have all of these new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, the the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. We have all these new atheists that that are constantly out there, and they speak in such a way as if to suggest that all of their arguments that they're making. Are based on new discoveries, as if you know we poor peons haven't really been following mm. discoveries in science or sociology or anthropology or or, or any mm. of a thousand isms. And if we really kept up with the facts, we'd realize that Christianity has been disproved. But mm. actually, there is nothing new about the new atheism. All of their major arguments have been around for at least 2,600 years. I mean, mm-hmm. you go back to the, uh, what are called the pre-Socratic philosophers, about 600 to about 450 B.C. They're already pretty much pure Darwinists and materialists. If you look at the Stoics, they're about, the, you know, the time of 5th century B.C., time of, uh, of Socrates. The, the Stoics are already basically what we would call moral relativists. They think morality changes from place to place. Uh, You've got Lucretius in the first century BC, and he lays out basically a Darwinian system that shows how everything we see can come about by random material, natural processes. Mm. I mean, they're all there Uh, in the early church, in the middle ages, there's nothing new. And see, the problem, Nick, is that, and and, and it's so subtle, we don't realize that the new atheists have sort of convinced us that the nature of reality is evolutionary. In other words, we started dark and ignorant and superstition, but now we found this enlightenment that we understand. It's like Richard Dawkins was trying this movement to start to call atheists the brights, like bright people. Uh, They're the brights, we're all the ignorant ones, right? But that's just simply not true. The arguments that go on between the new atheists and the Christians today have been going on for thousands of years. The debate's been there, And in no way has atheism won the debate. In fact, in most cases, it's been Christianity, or at least theism, that's won the debate.
1: Yeah, there's something interesting you got here early on. Perhaps the best way to sum up the stream from the modern meta-narrative is to know how many secular academics really think that the only reason the early Christians believed in the virgin birth, which I do affirm, was that they were ignorant of the science of human reproduction. That sounds like a comparing argument until one realizes that though Joseph did not know about the meeting of sperm and egg, he did know that a woman does not give birth unless she has sex with a man. <clears throat> that is why he was preparing to divorce her when the angel appeared to assure him that Mary was still a virgin. You know what I mean? That's, uh, that's something that just amazes me here when uh, I meet people. Huh. Where all these people believed in impossible things, and we know better now since we know about physics. and Things like that. I said... Really? So uh, when did we discover that it takes sex to make babies or that people can't walk naturally on water or that dead people stay dead or things like that?
0: Great. I mean, you're putting your finger right behind the essence of the book. I mean, it's one of those things that I I still hear people say it. Very intelligent, educated people. Again, they get this smirk on their face like, again, the only reason they believed in the virgin birth is because they didn't know where babies come. But people know. In fact, the whole point is Okay, if we actually lived in a world where we had no idea of the laws of nature, we had no ideas of how things worked, then we would never say that's a miracle. Because the only reason we'd say that's a miracle is if we recognize that this is not the way things work. We don't live in a world where things like that work. That's why (laughs) – a funny story, Nick. uh, when, When my kids were young, I would always read them these wonderful fairy tales from the Red Fairy Book and the Blue Fairy Book. Uh, and and um, by Andrew Lang. But in our family, there's this little joke. We, we love reading this story. It's called The Enchanted Pig. And the speaking enchanted pig comes to the court of the king and sort of sues for his daughter's hand. And after he gives this long speech about why he wants to marry the princess, the king says to him, Pig, I am surprised that you speak so eloquently. And then my kids laugh because the joke is, the king is not surprised that the pig speaks. He's only surprised that the pig speaks eloquently. Mm-hmm. Because in fairyland, there is no law of nature that says animals can't speak. And so it's not a miracle. But if a pig spoke in our world, everybody, whatever era they lived in, would immediately recognize it. So, yeah. in other words, you can't have miracles unless people understand how the basic laws of nature work. I mean, Okay, we didn't have the word gravity until, whatever, three, four hundred years ago, but everybody knew that if you throw a rock up, it falls down, and if the rock ended up flying into the air, anybody would recognize that this is not the way things work. It's a miracle. Again, it's it's a strange kind of arrogance that's been bred into us. Well, actually, we could kind
1: of say we all knew that until Hume came along, because Hume's the first one, I think, who really did dispute that, say— just because you drop a rock a thousand times and it falls doesn't prove
0: they'll fall of a thousand and first time. That's, that's true, and, and, and Hume is an interesting one. I, I talk a lot about Darwin and Hume in my book, and the one thing that those two guys have in common is, well, let me explain it this way, right? If you're trying to prove to somebody that the sun is at the center of the universe and not the earth, but at least of our, of, our, of our solar system, that the sun is at the center… You wouldn't try to prove it by quoting Galileo, right? We've got plenty of evidence today. You don't need it. But what's amazing is that people still refer directly, especially to those two, Darwin and Hume, as if they've proven something. But they haven't. Darwin in no way proved the theory of evolution. In fact, fact, if he lived today, I wonder if he'd even believe it if he understood uh, biochemistry and molecular biochemistry. But Hume... Really, he, he wrote a book, and he's got one chapter on miracles. And he really believed by the end of the chapter that he disproved miracles. But but he didn't because he, he's, he's what we call loading the dice, making a sort of circular argument. And what he basically says is miracles violate the laws of nature. You can't violate the laws of nature. Therefore, there are no miracles. I mean, and then basically, when you boil it down to that, and the other argument he makes is we don't have enough. Sort of first-hand evidence to really know if the miracle happened. So we'll just dispute. We'll just ignore it. Now take the second one first. I mean, if if we accept his understanding of facts and historicity, then we have to throw out almost everything that happened in the past. There's no way we can really have reliable evidence. But I'm more interested in spend more time on, on the first argument that, well, that miracles violate. Go good. Go before you go to the first one, I would say.
1: Oh good. We do, in fact, have first-hand evidence, and if someone's listening they're curious about that, go back to the first week oh, okay, of the show. We interviewed Craig Keener on his book, Miracles.
0: Oh, he's great. Yeah, I, I, did, I did a review of his book once, and it's unbelievable. Craig Keener wrote a two-volume book called Miracles. It's probably the most detailed book I've ever seen with endless notes. I mean, he, he went around, and there's two parts to Keener's book. The second part actually documents thousands of miracles that have happened in the last century. I mean, he, he yes. shows that miracles are still happening, but he goes back and he answers Hume and he shows that we, we have very, I mean, go, go, go ahead. Was there a more specific question?
1: No, I wasn't saying but uh, oh, okay. I was saying you said, that's most specific, book with all the details, I was saying, have you read his Acts commentary or seen his
0: Acts commentary at all? Oh, I'm sorry, his his what commentary? Oh, you know, I've I've not yet read his commentary on Acts. I read his book on miracles.
2: His
1: Acts commentary has four volumes long.
0: Wow, I've heard about it, but I haven't read that yet. I mean, the man's an amazing scholar. He just digs in there and digs in there. And I mean, see, what I'm so happy today is that much of the best apologetics today, and I do a little bit in my book and one of my older books, apologetics for the 21st century, (laughs) is at the center of our faith is the resurrection. Now, what I mean by that is the famous uh, scientist, philosopher of science named uh, Karl Popper, some people have heard about him. Popper said one of the criteria that a system is correct, whether it's Darwinism, Freudianism, whatever the system, one one of the criteria is what he calls falsifiability. If this is a logical, coherent system, there should be a way to falsify it. In other words, can, can you find something? And if you prove it, will it falsify that system? If there's no way to falsify that system, it would suggest that the system is just sort of self-referential and has no proof. And I, I would say that Freudianism. And anytime you try to argue against Freudianism, they're just going to tell you that you're actually having some kind of psychological resistance to it. And so there's no way, no way out of the box. Mm-hmm. But the amazing thing about Christianity is it is a coherent and falsifiable system. If you could prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, if you could discover the body, then Christianity would be revealed as a hoax. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 admits this himself. He says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are the most miserable of all people. So our faith rests on a historical miracle that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason I bring this up is, again, in in contrast to Hume, we have great historical scientific reason to trust that the resurrection happened. Why is that? Because the gospels are based on eyewitness accounts, on eyewitness testimony. And what's amazing is when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a lot of modern people, usually the new atheists, will, you know, somebody like Bart Ehrman, let's say, will read those four accounts and notice that there are small discrepancies between them. And they'll immediately say, aha, this proved that it's all a hoax. But actually it doesn't, right? If you are a judge, right, and you are in a court case, much of the court case is gonna be based on eyewitness testimony. Now, if the eyewitness testimony was all completely opposed to one another, then the judge might throw that out. There wouldn't be enough evidence. But if all of the eyewitness evidence, all the testimonies given were exactly the same, then the judge would say, this is collusion. There's got to be some kind of conspiracy going on because nobody gives exactly the same eyewitness testimony from their own perspective. What is the most uh, reliable in court? is when the testimony complements each other without being absolutely detailed word for word. And that's what we have in, in, the, in the gospel. We have early testimony. And what's, what's wonderful, I like we could spend a whole two hours in this, but one of the wonderful details that apologists have pointed out is that according to the gospels, the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, in that time, the, the women's evidence wasn't acceptable in court. So if you were going to make this up, You would not say that the first eyewitnesses were women. The only possible reason why you would say that is if that is what actually happened, that we've got an early record of the eyewitness accounts.
1: I'd like to say at that point also, for people wanting some more information on that, again, pointing back to the archives, I believe earlier this year we interviewed Dr. Richard Bauckham on the second edition of his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Excellent.
0: Yeah, that is, oh, you've got great people on your show. Yeah, it's it's an excellent book. He's doing such important work. Yeah. I mean, people need to understand that, you know, again, Christianity from its beginning and the early Christianity is founded in history. We have a lot of evidence of what was going on very early on. It's not just myth and hearsay. It it, it is factual, grounded in history and in eyewitness (laughs) accounts.
1: Now, let's move on but book. One thing I'd like to get clear at the start here is when I was reading a book, there's a term that was used that it could be misunderstood some. And that was when you kept speak, speaking about empiricism as a problem, mm-hmm. because I consider myself an empiricist, but I consider myself one of the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition. And I think you might disagree with that tradition,
0: but it's... It's a valid one in Christianity. No, I think you know. I, I think a good way because that, that's a good point, Nick. Yeah. A, a good way to to segue into this is to talk about the different meanings of the word naturalist. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of people, you might even call yourself a naturalist in the sense that sometimes a naturalist is somebody who studies nature very closely. I mean, a lot of bird watchers or people that study flowers and whatnot will call them naturalists because they study nature. But there's another meaning for that word. Mm. A naturalist often means someone who believes that all there is in the universe or the world is nature. In other words, there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing metaphysical. All there is is nature. It's kind of like the word materialism. Philosophically, a materialist believes that all there is is matter. Something like Marx, there is no spirit. But in our culture, a materialist is sometimes, you know, Madonna, a material girl living in a material world. So you're right. An empiricist, in the Aristotelian sense, is that we base what we do on observation. We study and observe. But often when it's used by somebody like Hume, then what they mean is, The only source of knowledge is through our five senses and through experience. Now, the problem with that from the point of view of Christianity or just religion in general Mm -hmm. is that pure empiricism does not allow for revelation. Mm -hmm. That we can get a message from the supernatural realm, which is what Christians and Jews believe about the Bible. It's what we believe about the prophets. Even to a certain extent, a miracle is a Intrusion, if you will, where something divine enters for a moment in, yeah. into the natural. So, so, so you're right. That's a good distinction to make. That that you know, anybody that's a scientist, you know, needs to base their. And I, what's really neat about that is I talk a little bit, Nick, in my book about intelligent design. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, the true intelligent design person will say, as a scientist, I'm an empiricist. In other words intelligent design theorists, like a Michael Behe or something like that, they they don't base their evidence by quoting Genesis, they do their evidence by studying very, very carefully the evidence. And if you study the evidence very carefully, it shows that what we're looking at has been designed. It couldn't have just happened randomly. It bears all the evidence of design in, in the same way that an empirical scientist who is going around England, let's say, and the scientist notices circles of stone that are just sort of random. Well, he's like, well, that just could have happened by weathering and whatnot. But then he sees Stonehenge, and by his evidence, by his empirical evidence, he immediately realizes that this is not a random natural phenomenon. This was designed. He may not know who designed it. We used to think it was the Druids. Now they say it was somebody much older. But we recognize that it's designed. So, in, in that sense, you're right. I and mean, I'm glad we do have uh, Christian empiricism, in the sense that they're willing to take the time to do the observation. But we've got to be careful in fields like philosophy that we don't exclude the possibility of, of for instance, having some kind of intuition or revelation or some kind of prophetic knowledge. I'm, I'm not talking about being, quote, Pentecostal, kind of although that's important too, uh, but that. that that information can reach us in other ways mm-hmm. and that, in fact, we might even have – see, see, one of the famous empiricists was, was, of course, John Locke. And John Locke said that we are born as complete blank slates. You know that famous phrase, tabula rasa, it really means white paper, that we are complete blank slates and that everything we know can only come through our senses. But a lot of Christians would argue that God has put in us a sense of the divine, a sensus divinitatis, is the Latin phrase that He's put in us a yearning for Him. So, in other words, there's something beyond the empirical. But again, I, I think I'm glad you mentioned that Nick, because it is important yeah. that yeah. that as Christian, especially if we're a Christian academic, that but any kind of Christian needs to be able to base what they're doing mostly on what we can study and observe and calculate, as, as you said, Aristotle taught us.
1: Yeah. You know, you go on, the next part is about the origins of the universe. And I always find this one to be fascinating, because coming from a Thomistic perspective, I'm sure you understand the origins of the universe isn't really necessary for my argument. I responded huh. a few weeks or so ago on. Someone making a video about the first way of Thomas Aquinas, and they made it be about the origins of the universe. I said, this guy's got it wrong entirely. entirety. Aquinas' argument is not about the origins of the universe. He can have an eternal universe, and his argument for God still works. The interesting thing is, we can have an eternal universe, and God still exists. But it does seem to add an extra herder, if it's clear the universe did have a beginning.
0: You're right. It is interesting, and of course, you know Aquinas was influenced very much Aristotle, and yep. Aristotle actually believed in in both what's called the Big Bang and the steady state. In other words, he believed that God and the universe were both eternal. Mm. Um, and and you could still, I mean, you know, because a lot of you know what Aquinas says goes back to Aristotle. That even if the universe is eternal, you you still need. A, you know, an unmoved mover. You still need a fixed point. You still need an origin, or you have what they call infinite regress. It just goes back and back, and we yeah. have nothing uh, to begin motion or whatnot. Yeah. But I, I mean, you're right in that sense. You know, Christian apologists never needed the Big Bang. But what's amazing is that once they discover it, suddenly we have science coming to the defense of of. Basically, in the beginning, God, <laughs> uh, this, this idea that well, which it's what the, what the, what the Bible and, and what Christian theology calls creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And to be honest, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about that. Basically, it's Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And more interestingly, the other place where we get ex nihilo is Hebrews chapter 11, the famous faith chapter, right, about Abraham and everyone. And it actually says, by faith, we believe that God created everything, making everything seen out of what's unseen. So in Hebrews 2, it it talks a little bit uh, about that idea. Um, but you're right it's it's not a mis- necessary part of the faith, but it's pretty exciting when you know scientific discoveries are are pointing in the definition of, of, a, of a biblical truth. It's kind there, of amazing.
1: There's that great quote from uh, Robert Jastrow's book God and the Astronoms very old those own lines up For a scientist who has put the faith his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like the bad like a bad dream. He's climbing a mountain of ignorance, he is pouring himself to the edge. And just as he reaches the top, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries.
0: <laughs> I love that quote. You're right. It, it's, it's such a powerful image, you know, and, and uh, it, it does kind of tur- turn the tide at least once. Who, who are the ones that, that really don't know? I mean, what's amazing though, about this, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, is that, okay, one of the new atheists of his age uh, would have been Carl Sagan, right? Yep. Uh, he would have fit in very well with Dawkins and all these folks. <laughs> And I'll never forget, uh, and I don't know if you're old enough, Nick, to remember the original Cosmos that was about 1979 or 1980. I saw it when I was a kid, Uh, and it was on PBS. And in that famous series about the Cosmos, which has been rebooted, (laughs) of course, a few years ago. Um, Anyway, he starts by saying the Cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Mm -hmm. Now, what's amazing about that statement, Nick, is that, In 1980, most of the regular people, those of us who aren't actual scientists, we didn't know yet about the Big Bang. But by 1980, all the scientists were well aware that the Big Bang had been pretty much proven. They'd already discovered what they called the smoking gun, the background radiation. I mean, by by 1980, Carl Sagan knew well and good that the universe had a beginning. And yet, still, he begins his series with what is basically a metaphysical statement that the universe is all there ever is. And of course, what he's doing, very, very kind of nasty there, is he's taking the praise of God in Revelations four, uh, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come." And what he's done is he's taken that statement and made it not about God but about the universe, about the cosmos, which is <laughs> that's what the, what the Jews would call chutzpah there. <laughs> a little bit, um, but anyway, what I'm getting at is that. Even though he, he knows, the other great example is, is um, what's his name? Uh, uh, <laughs> the, um, the one who just died. Um, Stephen Hawking. The Hawken. Theory of Everything guy. Stephen uh, Hawking, thank you. The name escaped me. Yeah, Stephen Hawking, you know, in the very beginning, when he wrote that book, The Brief History of Time, which you know made him an overnight bestseller, in the beginning, he was one of the great popularizers of the Big Bang until at some point he suddenly realized the theistic implications of the Big Bang, that if you have a Big Bang, you need a Big Banger. And he spent the rest of his career, right, right until his death, backpedaling and backpedaling and trying to come up with a, quote, material, naturalistic, scientific explanation for the Big Bang that could escape from any kind of theism. So both of those two people, two of the great scientists and logical thinkers, just refuse to accept the implications of what science was telling them and made all sorts of crazy strides to get around it. I mean, multiverses and things and, you know, Richard Dawkins, along with others, have now suggested that our DNA was seeded by aliens, what they call panspermia, an idea that was actually started by Crick, one of the co-founders of the double helix of the DNA. So, uh, well, you know, we're, we're in a world now where basically the most ludicrous scientific explanation will trump The simplest, most logical, theistic uh, uh, explanation every time. That's where we're at right now. Crazy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I remember hearing something. You can go and listen to it at the biblical training website. Ron Nash, before he passed away, he did a Hmm. series of lectures on philosophy. And he told a story Uh in there about Carl Sagan. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He died at a relatively young age because apparently he had Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, and right. He was part of a sort of mailing group, a computer mailing group of astrophysicists. And there were a lot of Christians in this group. And one huh. of them apparently posted something saying, Carl, I hear you have a big test coming up. I hope you pass. And a few huh. days later, apparently he called, Sagan wrote back and said, I hope I pass too. Please pray for me.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I know, I will tell you, I, I know, especially with Stephen Hawking, he had so many Christians around him that were talking to him all the time. A lot of people that knew him yeah. and just, and, and of course, as you know, especially if you've seen the movie, his, his first wife was a pretty strong Christian. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the weird thing about Stephen Hawking is the disease that he had should have killed him in a couple years. And yet be. he lived with that terrible disease over 40 years. I mean, it's unheard of, it just doesn't happen. And it was almost like God was keeping him alive to reach out to him, I, you know, I don't, nobody knows what's going on at, at that deep level, but it's 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 kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, um, he, he like, was such like, a, like I said, when you've got a, go ahead. He was such a
1: popular figure too. I mean, my yeah. wife and I both enjoy watching the Big Bang Theory, for instance, and it was always yeah. wonderful when Stephen Hawking showed up on there. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: A man, you know, who, who and anyway, in any case, who can't, you know, just um, be amazed by this man that has such a crippling disease and yet does amazing things? I mean, you know, in that sense, he's a very heroic person. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's communicating through just that little tube, basically. I mean, it's unbelievable, uh, the, the heroism there. But I don't know. It, it's, it, it, it's, you know, like I said, see, when it comes down to it, I think, and, and we write these books about apologetics, and, you know, you can make all these great arguments, but. I think when it comes down to it, what really stops people just in general all around the world is that, you know, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is Savior, right? Well, Mm -hmm. nobody goes to a Savior unless he thinks he needs to be saved from something. And most people think they're doing pretty well on their own. Especially Americans, it's amazing how many Christians there are in our country because most Americans are all about self-reliance and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and I don't need anybody to help me. It's amazing that we still are, in some ways, the Christian country uh, because it, it does take a, a moment of, of, you know, of calling out for help. The other thing that I think stops so many of the scientists is that as soon as you run up, I mean, hey, New Age stuff, even a lot of Hinduism and Buddhism, it allows you to be very spiritual but there's not much ultimate accountability there. Because so often in the new age, what happens is in one way or another, God sort of becomes the universe. And you know what? The universe doesn't really care. But as soon as you bounce up against the God of the Bible, you've got a God that holds you accountable. And a lot of people don't want to be accountable. And so they'll find any way that some of the some of the new atheists even have admitted that they wanted atheism to be true so that they could sleep around at least when they were young. You know, they, mm-hmm. that we, we we want to hold it at arm's length so we can do what we want to do. Uh, and, and you know, I, I don't say this to to make fun of these people. I just say it that that you know, we just have this. You know, basically, we live in an age where the scientist has become the sort of new priest of a religion. yeah, And so we love to look up to our scientists as if they're priests and martyrs and whatnot. And we've got to realize that, like us, they have mixed motives, that their motives are not always absolutely pure and objective. Sometimes, maybe the best way to put it is according to Freud, basically, Freud said that religion is a wish fulfillment. Right? Well, I would argue, and Lewis has said this too, that atheism is a wish fulfillment because it means I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I don't want anybody looking over my shoulder. And so my wish fulfillment is that there is no God, only a universe that may or may not care. Right? I, I, I talk about this in a book, and I wonder if this has come up in any of your programs, Nick, that that idea that the modern religion of America is moral therapeutic deism, or MTD. That, that we have a country where a lot of people are religious, but it's kind of religious, I don't know, psychotherapy or something. Mm. You know, we want a God, but we want a completely user-friendly God that never gets angry at us, never holds us accountable, only gives us lots of warm fuzzies. And there was a book about that, yeah. uh, saying that, that, that that's really the God that's at the center of much of the modern world.
1: Yeah, I have had a problem with many church services Today, that the same message seems to be entirely about how to be a good person, such Mm -hmm. which you should be, of course. But there's never (laughs) seemingly any real wrestling with the text, going back, understanding the context, things like that. And the only reason you accept Jesus as savior is you want to go to heaven someday. Right. And I remember being in a small group once at church in Tennessee. And hearing some ladies say, well, I'm saved, and my children are saved, so you just sit back and wait for Jesus to come. You know, oh, my gosh, she is yeah, terrible. Exactly. <laughs> um, how do you know your children are going to stay that way, especially if you go off to college? And what about your neighbor's children? Are they saved? I mean, what are yeah. you doing to advance the kingdom? It seems like you say, well, God's met my needs, so now I'm just going to
0: sit back and wait for him to come. <laughs> oh, it is terrible. Yeah. And that happens, though. I mean, that's that's what you call it, you know. I mean, there are some people that misunderstand grace and think they have to work for religion. But there are other people who misunderstand grace who think I could just sit around and do nothing. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that that you're, you're certainly haven't been regenerated by God if you're just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, very very hard. I,
1: I compare it to a marriage, which is probably a pretty good idea, since the Bible compares it to a marriage. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, because. I'm married, and my wife and I are celebrating eight years this Tuesday, by the way. but Oh, congratulations. Because I'm married, that doesn't mean I, uh, for instance, sit back on my couch and play video games all day long and say, Hey, I'm married, and I'll get rewards of being married anyway. It means, hey, I'm married, and I have a great gift in my life, so I'm going to go out, and I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> Not so I can stay married, but because I am, and I want to make... Is relationship, the best it can be.
0: That, that's a great analogy, and you're right. It's absolutely biblical because, you know, eventually we in the church are the bride of Christ and we'll be married to the bridegroom. And in fact, you know, as we often say, the Bible is not a tragedy but a comedy. It doesn't end with a death. It ends with a marriage, the great marriage yeah. of Christ in the church. And you're right. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, once you say I do and exchange your vows, you are married. But what is the nature of your marriage? You're right. You just sit around and play video games. And some people do <laughs> yeah. and never talk to their spouse. Uh, heck, nowadays, we'll have, we even have girls sitting around playing video games and not talking to their husband. I mean, mm-hmm. so many distractions out there uh, and not growing together. Not, uh, you know, It would be like you, you got married and said I love you and then never said I love you again and never reached out, never tried to learn. And, and you're right. It, I mean, it, it is a marriage. I mean, it's, it's a relationship. That needs to be worked on and and needs to grow. Uh, otherwise, you know what what is our marriage? <laughs> and I, I like uh, what just, you said. Just a piece of paper.
1: I like what you said also about the motives of some atheists and such. I mean, of course, we can't say that's the motives of all of them or that's why they're doing it. I mean, we still have to answer the arguments either way. Just like I'm sure there are Christians that are Christians for shallow reasons, but the arguments are still there. <clears throat> but uh, Don Johnson, for instance. Talked talks about this thing happening in his book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. One time he says he doesn't normally rec- recommend this approach, but apparently here it was very fruitful. But there was a Christian who was talking to either his pastor, his youth pastor, and he was presenting a lot of doubts and objections he had against the Bible. He seemed to be very antagonistic and such about this. And fine, the guy who was being questioned just turned to him and said, How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? and this guy turned as white as a ghost, apparently. That was the issue. He had started doing that, and so he said, um, apparently he was saying either I stopped doing this or I stopped the church. I wonder which one he's going to go with.
0: Interesting. It does sound familiar. I may have heard that story. you, You could say it's a little bit similar So when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, and he says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And then he says, you're right. You've been married five times and the man you're living with now is not your husband. He cuts right to the chase. Uh, But he doesn't do it out of cruelty. He does it out of love because... You know, I mean, when you look at John chapter 4, Jesus is affirming that this woman is seeking the right thing love, acceptance, all of that sort of stuff, but she's doing it in the wrong way. That's why he offers her living water. But I mean, you know, it's interesting you bring this up because, you know, I've, I've got 10 chapters in the book. And if you ask me which is the most important, I think the most important one, the one I spent the most time on, and I think is the most timely, is the chapter where I talk about an early church heretic named Marcion. Now Marcion, we're talking about 200 AD or so. Marcion uh, started a heresy that we called Marcionism after him and what Marcion basically did is he drove a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He said that this Old Testament God is an angry God full of wrath and he's evil and cruel and kills people and then there's this nice, wonderful New Testament God named Jesus, meek and mild, loving, never says a bad word, caring. And what he did is he drove a wedge between the two. And what he basically wanted to do is throw out not only the Old Testament God, but the Old Testament and make Christianity just about love and mercy and wonder. Now, what's amazing about that is that we have returned 100 percent to Marcionism, mm-hmm. Um I think the, the biggest argument that I hear from from even people that call themselves Christians is, wait a minute, wait a minute, look in the uh, Old Testament, look at what's called the conquest of Canaan. Look, Jesus is an ethnic, not Jesus, but God, the Father is an ethnic cleanser. We need to throw out the Old Testament. All we want is love and tolerance and acceptance and inclusivism and whatnot, and what I'm getting at is that we've gone right back. We think we think that we've discovered this or something like that. But the church fought. And see, a lot of people have this idea: oh, you know, the the church made up the Bible. Well, the whole point is that people knew the canonical books, but after. Marcion's heresy caused a lot of problems, then they had to make up an official list. I mean people basically knew, but they had to make that list official, not only for the New Testament, but for the Old Testament. Okay, now, here's the point I want to make now. This this, uh, argument has been raised now, and and I think it's one of the strongest arguments against Christianity and makes people lose their faith. But what's wonderful is not only was the same argument made 1,800 years ago, it was answered fully by an early church father named Tertullian. Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I was going through my book and I found the quote, it, it just amazed me when I read this quote, because Tertullian, 1800 years ago, Tertullian says, this is the ca- kind of God you Marcians want. And I, I'm gonna read this, just it's not too long. I'm gonna read this because this is, a, I think, an almost clinical description of moral therapeutic deism we've come back to. And this is what uh, Tartullian says, ironically, he says, Oh my, he says, a better God has been discovered by Marcion, who has never taken offense, is never angry, he never inflicts punishment, uh, he has never prepared fire in hell, no gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. He is purely and simply good. Oh, now, he does forbid all delinquency, Not only in word. He is in you if you are willing to pay him homage for the sake of appearances that you may seem to honor God. For your fear, he does not want. I mean... That's unbelievable, I mean, this is exactly what you know, pe- people are preaching right now, and he's saying, ironically, that you Marcionists have found this wonderful, you know, again, I, I, I used to say user-friendly, moral therapeutic God, and you don't need him. But, but Now, there he's being ironical, but in the rest of his book, Tertullian gives some good arguments, and he says, look, even you Marcionists <laughs> believe that God makes commands and forbids certain things, but if he doesn't have the justice and holiness— to back up those commands, sometimes with punishment, then what kind of a weak God is this that you're serving? He, he's an inconsistent God. He, he can't make rules and yet lack the power and will to enforce them. What exactly is this God that you want? And I, I tell you that this is – this is what I see – because I, I, I teach in a university, I'm a very conservative university. But what I'm seeing is the biggest issues that are turning – Church kids, these are kids that grew up in the church and whatnot, fairly conservative kids, and are moving away from the faith, and the two issues I see the most, one is the gay issue, the other is this issue of, you know, the, the, the Old Testament God of wrath, and Nick, this, this bothers me because what's happening here, okay, it would be one thing if the students were saying, well, you know, I, I, I doubt the accuracy of the Bible. Now, that's bad, okay, but that's not at the very essence of our faith, but that's not what they're saying. What they're really starting to say, we're raising a generation of young people and not so young people who believe that they themselves are more moral than the God of the Old Testament. mm mm-hmm. Now, you see how we've moved from doubting the Bible to the very worst sin of all, and that's the sin of pride, that I know better. So, so again, it, it's what we've done, that the, they seem like they're completely opposite, but the, the whole LGBT issue, when you link it together with this idea of God as an ethic cleanser or something, what we're getting at is this insistence that Christianity is is and only is a, a religion of inclusivism and absolute tolerance an absolute embracing of everything. Yeah, I, I now. Are you seeing that it's dangerous because yeah. it, we are a religion that embraces, but we don't embrace sin. That's self-destructive. Yeah.
1: Wow. Uh, I would like to say that if anyone's interested in the issues of God and the Old Testament and His moral nature and such, yes, once again we have some shows on that. Parker Pond. Oh, has- great. <laughs> Paul Pan has been on to talk about the book Is God a More Monster? <laughs> Matthew Flanagan on, has been on to talk about "Did God, recommend Genocide. And John Walton has been on to talk about The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest.
0: So we've got plenty of material here. Excellent, excellent. I, I, those are important because I, I really do think that may be one of the most important issues right now. And I think one of the reasons it is is because, especially like, I, I don't even know if I want to read it because it's so nasty, but Richard Dawkins' book, the, the, God, uh, the God Delusion, he's got that one long sentence where he basically accuses the God of the Old Testament of being everything, whatever, racist, sexist, homophobe, uh, infanticide. He just goes on and on and on, uh, attacking him as, yet a moral monster. Uh, and I think part of that reason, part of it's the accountability issue. But I think the other reason why this issue is becoming the most important right now amongst new atheists attacks is because they're losing in every other front. I mean, they really have lost in the scientific realm. Now, I'm not saying that that the scientific evidence necessarily proves a a literal six-day creation. I'm just saying that what the evidence shows is that we were designed, right? That it's not random, that Darwinian evolution simply could not have produced it. And again, Dawkins admits that by saying that maybe our DNA was seeded. Basically, he's admitting that the DNA is too complicated, too front-loaded with information to possibly have come about by slow, gradual Darwininos. He's admitting that by looking for another option. Um, so what, what I'm saying is they're, they're losing in every even Even in terms of history, they're losing. as more and more evidence about the resurrection. And I think the last place they're turning to is a sort of, Well, it's the same thing we see in politics today, Nick, what I call phony moral outrage. They go, oh, I'm outraged. What I love is how many complete moral relativists there are out there in the media, complete moral relativists. They don't believe there are any standards of anything, and yet they're continually going crazy about scandals in politics. Well, if, if you believe everything's relative, then there's no such thing as a scandal, right? If there is no sexual morality standard, then what is this scandal you're talking about? So it, it, there's a great irony underneath it, but it, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's know—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost an act of desperation. My, my last defense is to show moral outrage, even if I don't really feel any. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I wow. also think it could be one of the reasons behind this is because we've become a culture <laughs> that is very feelings oriented where if i feel it it must be true and it's not saying that feelings are evil or anything but they're not the first right. place to go to and it's right. too easy to go that way so the whole idea is to go with try and get people to feel something and then leave that way and i think that does happen in the political arena especially whenever you bring up the term for children because
0: then oh the i hate that just like right. the, the children fears. <laughs> I don't never, never remember what politician I heard, but he, you know, he was, again, trying to rile people up. And he said something about this back in the Soviet. You know, I don't want the Soviets pointing their, their, their nuclear weapons at our children. <laughs> what the heck does that mean, right? <laughs> I mean, well, let's, say, let's say all the adults died and all the children in their two years actually survived. They're all going to die without the adults to take care of. You're right. I, just, I hate that rhetoric. And, 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 you know, to be fair, we, we see it sometimes in our churches, too. One of the things that I hate is whenever there's some innovation in church, I mean, I don't mean a bad one, a good innovation or at least a neutral innovation. And there's a lot of middle aged people that don't like it because it's, it's breaking their, you know, whatever their pattern of doing things. They don't say this is offending me. They say, if we make this change, it's going to upset the senior adults. And actually, the senior adults are not upset at all. You know, they're senior adults. They've learned to be flexible. They're they're ready for another tip revival, right? It's the middle aged people who don't want uh, things to to break their pattern and whatnot. And, and and we just do that more and more, and it really does drive me crazy. And I I, I wish I wish that I could prove this. Uh, Nick, here you're, you're pretty good. Maybe you could prove it. But I am absolutely convinced. You know how people now instead of saying. B.C. and A.D., it's politically correct to say B.C.E. and C.E., right, before the common era and common era. And they present that as if, oh, we've got to do this so we don't offend Jewish people. Well, I am absolutely convinced that that was not invented. That euphemism wasn't invented by a Jew, almost certainly in, 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 done by some white liberal Christian, self-loathing liberal Christian. The Jews are very you know, smart and, and uh, it's commonsensical people. They don't worry about that. It's, it's the self-loathing Christian that does that kind of stuff. I just hate those euphemisms. Yeah, we, but, can't, uh. we
1: can't reach the day and age, I think, in our society where a way to prove that something is wrong is to say that you are offended by it. And so many uh-huh. times I just want to say, grow up and get over it and move on because some, it, it, it's the way reality is. I Means if someone says something about, say, some people are saying that, you know, you go out and you speak against Christianity. And when we show up here, they say, well, see, all you Christians are offenders like, no, I'm not offended by your arguments against Christianity. Honestly, they make me laugh many times. Yeah. And, and if I was offended... Oh, well, I don't argue
0: because I'm offended. I argue because I care about what's true. Right. That's, uh, that's a good point, but we we are. I mean, it, it's, it's 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 gotten, I mean, that's why I'm glad that there are shows like yours, Nick, where you can have real discourse because mm-hmm. it's becoming more and more difficult. And I'm 54, so I still remember. I mean, really, people think it's not true, but I remember farther back in the 70s and 80s that you could watch the news, and they would bring <laughs> experts on, and actually have a, a fairly objective conversation, but for the last fifteen twenty years, whenever they bring a so-called expert on of, of anything, whatever side, that person's not so much an expert as a spin doctor. The spin—it doesn't make a difference what's said; they're going to spin it around. So there, there's there's no attempt to get at any kind of uh, of objective truth.
2: Yeah.
0: And, uh, Let's move on it's, to it's, it's something. Yeah, let's say, you know, I, I, you know we, should, we should believe in Christianity not because it makes us feel good, yeah. but because it's true. And that's basically what you're saying. Yeah, I, uh, the, the issue is not whether it makes me smile or not. The question is, is it true or false, good or evil, virtuous or vicious? That's yeah. the real important. And something that C.S. Lewis said right in the first of his screw tape letters, uh, and it's a senior devil teaching his junior devil how to tempt people. And what he says, one of the ways you tempt people is you never, ever get them to think of things in terms of good or evil, right or wrong, good or bad. You get them to ask questions. Don't ask, is it right or wrong? Ask, is it modern or old fashioned? Is it? Uh, is it new or is it old? Is it fashionable? You see, in other words, get off the real, simple, moral question of right or wrong and get it into that little hazy area. Not, not is this the right uh, solution, but is it the solution for the future? Is it the courageous and realistic solution? No. Is it right or wrong? Is it virtuous or vicious? But in our society, we've been edged away from the real question, to the peripheral
2: questions.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Let's move on to the book again. you got a chapter, for instance, on the good, the true, and the beautiful. And I think this is something that many people really don't think about. They don't think about reality in these kinds of terms. And sometimes, for instance, when I'm upset about something, all it takes it to realize, there is something good out there and I have to really see it as a good it could be something as simple as maybe getting a drink of water and realizing this is something that's really good it could be seeing our cat walking around here which yes seeing him walk around is a miracle since he sleeps so much But it could be seeing him and think my cat is a being that did not have to be and I think the only reason he exists is for the pleasure of people. Or seeing my wife and thinking, I am so blessed to have such a special woman in my life. And as soon as I think, as soon as we start thinking in these terms of things, of something being good, true, and beautiful, it will automatically pull us closer
0: to God. No, it it, it is true. What's interesting is, is that Uh, Nick, one of my favorite things to do the last 10 years is I speak at a lot of classical Christian schools all over the country. Wonderful what's going on. But recently, there's been a growing number of classical charter schools. Now, the fact that it's a charter school means it's public. But most of the classical charter schools I speak at are run by Christians, right? You might say it's a little bit of smuggled theology, as C.S. Lewis would say, (laughs) getting it in there. But what's wonderful is is that because it is a public school, uh, they, you know, they, they can't always be explicitly religious. But what a lot of these schools do when they're interviewing you know, teachers, they can't ask them, do you believe in God? Because it's a public school, right? But you can ask something like, do you believe that the good, the true, and the beautiful are real things? Yeah. And I will tell you today, Nick if you really believe in the good the true and the beautiful today it almost certainly believes that you're at least a theist maybe not a christian yeah. but you at least believe in god because unless there's a god unless there's someone outside of nature unless there's something transcendent that is that crosses and is universal then all you're left with is modern relativism. Well, it's only good if I think it's good or you think it's good. That's those sophists I mentioned from the golden age of Greece, 5th century B.C. They basically said that morality changes wildly from one city-state to the other. But no, there are standards. And the best way to edge into this, to show you what's happened to our society, if you talk to a Christian, pretty much a traditional conservative Christian, and you ask him, are there real, absolute standards of goodness? They'll probably say yes. Are there standards of truth? Yes. Are there standards of beauty? No. In our modern society, it's almost become a knee-jerk response, even if we're Christians, to say, well, beauty changes wildly from place to life. I don't know what it is, but and, – and the reason I mention this is so important is that goodness, truth, and beauty go together. This was something that that Plato understood. The early church fathers learned it from Plato, it was very big in the Middle Ages, that goodness, truth, and beauty are the the three universals, and they go together. And the trouble is that if we allow beauty to die, any standard of beauty to die, and make it absolutely relative, sooner or later, that will erode truth and goodness. Right? If we allow aesthetics to go, ethics and philosophy will often follow in their wake and we're just very very uncomfortable with standards today and i'm sure you've noticed that how uncomfortable people are to make standards
1: no Christians. no christian should ever say beauty is in the eye of a
0: beholder yeah it is problematic now Again, you know, there's difference. You know, some of us think that person's cute, and that person, but but there's something beyond that. There's 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 a difference to that. Behind beauty is a kind of wholeness, a kind of balance, a kind of clarity. These are well, you should know. Those are the words that 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 uh, what's his name? Like Thomas Klein often used. Yeah. Uh, about beauty, right? The, the standards of beauty. I think that the word is integrity. I think or wholeness, and the other word is claritas, uh, which is which is kind of. Filled with light, but I mean, you know, depends how you translate the words, but that there are standards that are out there, and, and we, we have to be careful that we don't care. You see, I really think that this, the reason this is such a problem, especially in America right now, one of the strange things about Americans, and I work with a lot of internationals, so they notice this. In one sense, we Americans are the most individualistic nation that's ever existed. In one sense, that's true. But at the exact same time, We as Americans are are incredibly conformist. We get such cognitive dissonance when we feel like we're not part of the group. And we're so quick that if we say this person's good at that, then we're, whoa, are you saying I'm bad at that? In other words, we we, we so much want to conform. It's weird because we're so individualistic. And at the same time, we want to conform and we get very, very uncomfortable and uh, I mean, it, just, uh, this is almost funny, but, you know, a lot of times if you say to an American, uh, l- let's say you had a relative that, uh, that didn't die in the 9-11 crash because they were at a do- – well, I actually have a relative who survived because his wife had a, a child on 9-11, right? Uh, and I know a lot of modern people, if you say to them, well, God was really watching out for that person, then they'll immediately say, oh, so I guess God didn't care about all the people that died? Yeah. Now, now I, I understand that there is a theological question behind that, but I think the real knee-jerk response is, oh, he cares about that guy more than me? That's not fair, <laughs> okay? Uh, who are you to stick out? Who are you to say you're special? You know, I, I am absolutely convinced. I, you know, I'm Baptist. I'm not Pentecostal. But a lot of times when Baptists are attacking Pentecostals because they have a gift of tongues or prophecy, they may have a lot of theological, biblical evidence they can marshal, but a lot of times that's not their real motivation. Their real motivation is, oh, so you got a gift I don't? You think you're more special than I am, right? I Look, as a Baptist, you know, Protestants in general, you know, we say, because it says in the Bible that all Christians are saints, right? And so a lot of Protestants, especially low Protestants. You know, don't like this Catholic notion of all these people being saints, right? But again, I I really think our knee-jerk response, it's not because of that verse in the Bible that says we're all saints. It's because we're thinking, oh, so you think you're more spiritual than I am. huh? You're a saint and I'm not. You see what I mean? Yeah. We, we, we don't admit that envy side of us <laughs> that demands fairness, that demands nobody be better or more beautiful or smarter than we are, uh, that, that's often what we're fighting, it's that kind of, and, and you know, envy, something we need to remember, a lot of it, this struck me once, and it just blew me away when I noticed it. Okay, you look at the Ten Commandments, right? Basically, the first five are about the relationship between man and God, and the second five are our relationship with our neighbor, more or less. Now, notice the thou shalt not, right? You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't commit adultery, all of those are very active sins. But what's the last one? Thou shalt not covet. Now, I want you to think about that, Nick. Coveting is what we today would call a victimless crime. How am I hurting you if I'm coveting your wife or coveting your car? How am I hurting anybody? Right? And yet, there it is. In the Ten Commandments is one of the, quote, big sins, because coveting, which is the same thing as envying, envying leads to so many other things. You know, in Plato's Purgatory, he works his way through the seven deadly sins. And like everything in Plato, every, in Dante, everything's ranked. So it's obvious that the worst of the deadly sins is going to be pride. Everybody would say that. It's, it's the sin of Satan, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is Dante makes the second worst sin envy. Because he understands what that does. It, again, because, see, many of us will admit to pride. Many of us will admit to lust. We'll admit to gluttony with no problem. We love admitting to sloth. But very few people admit to envy. because It's kind of a nasty sin. So instead of admitting to envy, we start making other excuses. Oh, it's not fair and all that sort of stuff. But deep down, it, it's a kind of envy that we need to get to at the core of things hope that makes sense.
1: <laughs> well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Wireless podcast. you got Dr. Lewis Marcos so on talking about his book, Atheism on Trial. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Brian Godwell on talking about the third installment in his Apocalypse series, Resistant. It's going to be focusing on the destruction of Jerusalem and the beginning of that event. So if you'd like to talk about end-time stuff, which I love to do, come back next week. Now, let's get back to uh, Dr. Marcos. You know, when you were talking about beauty being relative and such, (laughs) usually whenever Uh I meet someone who advocates this position, and let's assume it's a man, I always just Uh seem to ask one question in response, and I think it really can kill them (laughs) immediately. Just this one simple question. Is your wife truly beautiful, or do you just
0: say she's beautiful? (laughs)
2: Hmm.
0: That's a good way to put it, to get them to think that there are standards beyond just our feelings. Yeah. and I think, yeah, part, of, it's good, it's good. I
1: think part of the whole thing with the good, the true, and the beautiful is people are these things, and they don't know why they do. Because the clients would say we all have to pursue them, but we don't know why we're pursuing them. Hmm. I'm part of a Celebrate Recovery local church here, and one of the things men talk about, for instance, is sexual addiction. So often, like, and I've said, guys, when you're struggling with this, here's the thing: you all think that you need to decrease your love for sex, that right? it's too strong, it's overpowering you. Your problem isn't that you love sex too much. Your problem is you love it too little. <laughs> you love oh, it so little, you don't really know what it is, what it's for. It's just something you use. If you really loved it you would understand how sacred and special it is and you treat it differently.
0: That's a great point. Well, here's, here's something I, I think you'll, you'll appreciate, Nick. I, I speak often at our Museum of Fine, Fine Arts down here in Houston. And one time I was giving a speech on Titian, the great Venetian painter. Uh, And I was, you know, showing obviously slides and a a lot of his great works are are nudes, female nudes. And there's even one nude of Venus uh, where she's completely nude, full frontal nudity, as they say in Hollywood. And after I talked about the painting, I stopped for a moment. And it it was a secular audience mostly, but I said, now, you know, I've come here from Houston Baptist University, from a Christian school, I'm a Christian, and some of you may be wondering, you know, what I think about, you know, this nudity that I'm showing you. Is, is there really any difference between this nude painting and, and a centerfold in a pornogra- pornography magazine? And I said, you know, that's an important question and, and I, I want to answer it. And I think you'll like this distinction. What I suggest to them is what is the difference between this work of art and a centerfold? And this is how I described it. The man who looks at pornography, <clears throat> looks at these centerfolds, he goes back home. And he wonders why his wife doesn't look like that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: it gets him upset. But the man that goes to a museum and sees Titian's Venus, he goes home and he finds <laughs> Venus in his wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think it's very similar to what you just said, Nick. And I think there's a real truth there. That that again, I mean, you know, a lot of great art is nude, but it's not a nudity that goes against beauty. It's It's a nudity that draws us to a higher understanding of the beauty of the physical form that God has given us. Because matter is good for Christians. There, there, were, uh, not, there were people called Gnostics who believed the flesh is bad. And there are a lot of people who think, Christians think the flesh is bad. But it's the heretics who thought the flesh was bad. The true Christian said, no, matter is good. Our bodies are good. They are fallen, just like all of us is fallen. But matter is a good creation. And in heaven, we will have resurrection bodies. We will continue to be physical, bodily creatures because yeah. it's good. Uh, we, we, we are – that is what we are. We're not angels. Uh, you know, one of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life, but that movie has convinced many Americans that when we die, we become angels, which has yeah. just never been taught by the Bible, Christianity, everything. anything. We don't become angels. Angels are their own creation. Yeah. They're non-physical beings, but we are physical, spiritual beings. We're amphibians, <laughs> and we will have Perfected bodies uh, at some point in heaven, which is which is wonderful, uh, and and they will be beautiful in the fullest sense of the word beauty. Um, but it, it is it is a shame, and, and you know, and you know, a, a good way to follow up on what you just said, Nick, and you've probably heard people say this. Have you heard anybody say that one of the equivalents to men who spend all their time with pornography that a lot of women who spend all their time reading romance novels, Uh that those romance novels are a kind of (laughs) pornography, right? Now at first that seems crazy, because again, most romance novels are not too explicit. The women don't want them to be sexually explicit. So what has it got to do with pornography? The link there is that when women are spending all their time reading those novels, it gives them a phony, (laughs) illusionary view of what men is, of what romance is, of what marriage is. And in the, same, in the same way that pornography causes great discontent amongst men who are having sex with their wives, uh, those romance novels can cause great discontent with women so that they might even leave their husband because it's not like it was in the book, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think another distinction that can be made is that when a great painter paints the nude person on the canvas uh-huh. or sculpts the sculpture – the canvas can't speak back, or the sculpture can't speak back and say, don't do this to me, and such. Hmm. But when you're looking at a Playboy circle, you are looking at a real person who is allowing themselves to be treated as if they were just a
0: body, and that's it. Now, as That's a good point. And then that's, that's literally what the word objectify means yeah. in its philosophical sense. You've taken a person and made them an object, a thing.
1: As a a married man, I'd say, when I see my wife, I am seeing what I think is the most beautiful sight in the world, and there's nothing like it out there to me. And I'd say, yeah, if all I had was this, I would have more than enough evidence that God exists. And I've even argued before that men and women, I think, are put on this earth to represent God. And I think women are put here to represent
0: that God is beautiful. <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, okay, I can see that. I mean, we 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 see, you know, we're we're both made in the image of God, and it shows. How, I tell you, one of, one of the greatest books is is by uh, Pope John Paul II called the Theology of the Body, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful what he talks about in that book and about marriage and the way we complement each other and how God's fullness is shown through. Uh, in those, you see, part part of the reason that people have turned against beauty is another reason why we're having so much gender confusion. Because so much of the modern world is anti-essentialist. We don't believe there is such a thing as masculinity with a capital M, or femininity with a capital F, or beauty with a capital B, or justice. We we just believe we have scrapped it all. And everything is, you know, again, just, just a blank slate. Every, everything uh, we make up as we go along. And they, they don't want to recognize that we have an essence that we're born with, right? And the, the way I would put it is that it's not just our bodies that are masculine and feminine. It's our souls that are masculine mm-hmm. and feminine. God, it says, male and female created he them. It's, it's, it's something that's, that's part of who we are. Now, it's broken just like every aspect of us. There's so much brokenness out there. We live in a fallen world, uh, but that brokenness will eventually be fixed. Creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration, when all will be as it as it was in the beginning, and actually even more perfect ultimately. Uh, but people don't like that. We 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 don't like uh, to be told uh, what our essence is. But that's important, and that's, that's something that Aristotle and Aquinas understood. Uh, remember the four causes. Yeah. There's not only the efficient and final cause, but there's the formal cause. What is the form or essence of the thing? Yeah. And we just we just no longer. And you said something like this at the beginning of the interview here that that we've lost any sense of what the purpose of something is. The Greek word is the telos, the end or the purpose. And both Aristotle and Aquinas are very much teleological. If you're going to understand something, you need to understand what its purpose is. Uh, I'm sure at least some of your guests have quoted that famous beginning of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I mean, until you understand that that is our end, our purpose, we're going to lead to, we're going to hurt it. I, I love to use this example. Uh, let's say uh, I've got a, a broken chair and I need to nail the nail into it, right? And I can't find a hammer, so I pick up a Stradivarius violin and use it to bang oh, in God. the nail. Well, if I didn't know what the purpose of that violin was, if I didn't know its purpose was to make beautiful music, the most beautiful music, if I didn't know that, I might pick it up and use it exactly like a hammer and end up damaging it. That's what's happening in our world. We damage ourselves when we don't realize what our true purpose is. What's the purpose of our body, what's the purpose of our sexuality, all of these things. When we don't understand our telos, we end up hurting ourselves and other people because we break it when we don't use it right.
1: Uh, I think that happens again in the air of sexuality when... Usually I think when people are sleep together before they're married, they're in essence kind of uh-huh. testing each other out and yeah. seeing if they're good enough and such. But I know right. when I talk on marriage or on Facebook groups and such or in other blogs and such and <laughs> men are asked about pleasing their wives and such, we all pretty much say the same right. thing. Our pleasure Is bringing our wives pleasure. We love to see the happiness in our wives. That makes everything worthwhile for us. But if you use sexuality in a self-serving way, you're end up demeaning both of you. You're ultimately treating the other person as just a means to an end for yourself.
0: Hmm. That's true. That is true, and you know, I mean, they've shown. I mean, the statistics have shown that when you live together before marriage, you have a higher chance of getting divorced. And I think the reason is, it's kind of going with what you're saying. When you live together, you have begun your relationship with an escape clause, right? You know that if it doesn't work, you can get up and leave. And when you begin a relationship that way, you carry it into the marriage. So you actually, in other words, uh, in other words, it's not a good practice and it's not a good play practice at marriage, which is one of the excuses used for living together. Uh, it's 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 actually making it worse because it's breathing into you from the beginning that if you're unhappy, you can always leave this yeah. without any consequences. So yeah. I, I know it, in, it is it's
1: difficult. I know in our own marriage when my wife is questioning me about things about if, how much I really that one such, say, huh? I made a covenant with you. I meant it." I'm not going anywhere.
0: There we go. And and it's wonderful that you use the word covenant because that is the biblical word. I mean, you're right. That is one of the chief metaphors is is a marriage between God and his people. That's why in in older poetry, whenever they talk about the soul, they almost always use the pronoun she when they're speaking about the soul. It's very, very common uh, in older poetry because you know ultimately, again, we will be married to God. Uh, and and yeah, oh, the breaking of covenants, and I'm, I'm just amazed at how people just no longer just they take it for granted. Oh, I made an oath; it doesn't mean anything. It's so, what do you mean? You made an oath; you gave your your your, your sacred pledge of honor, right? Uh, oh, yeah, man. It's, it's Me, uh, it is difficult, speaking, but it, it it's
1: sometimes we can go it? to town, maybe about ten miles or so away from us, if I need to uh-huh. see a doctor or somewhere else. There, and on the way back. Every time we pass this billboard on the way back and it's for a divorce attorney it's like that, it says undo, I do and every time I reach over and take oh. her hand take her hand or put my hand on her leg or something and I just say
0: not us every time. Oh good. You're man, that that is just poisonous. To see for, can you imagine someone You know, that doesn't have a good firm foundation like you do to see that every day, that really does erode away any deep sense of morality. Undo, I do, that's terrible. Oh my gosh. Uh, Just turn it into a a little marketing uh, plug, something that, you know, it's just so difficult and has caused so much destruction. And then, you know, one of the things that's been shown, I mean, in the 70s, which I lived through, I mean, basically the myth was, ah, Divorce doesn't hurt children. They're fine. In fact, it's better for the children. Better they get divorced and the children see their parents fighting. Well, that's proven to be completely untrue. Uh, it's just simply not true. <laughs> but uh, but people have to convince themselves of that. I mean, it's, it's just like people convince themselves of, oh, no, daycare is good for kids. It will help them socialize. Now, you know, it might be the case that both parents do need to work. I mean, I'm not saying daycare is bad, uh, but it's not. The, the best option, let's just put it that way, okay? You may have to do it because, you know, that, that's it. I mean, money's money. You need to pay the rent. But what I'm getting at is we, we live in a culture that now wants to actually say that's better. Well, it's not really better. It, it's it's maybe the only option you have, but it's not better. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it, it's something. i like to
1: remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do is listener-supported. <laughs> Thanks to the help of ordinary people like you. People who are willing to chip in maybe five or ten bucks every now and then to help us with things. And we'd really appreciate your support. We've got a lot of financial needs and such. And if you're benefiting from the work here that we're doing, it's really fair for you to give back to the work that we're doing something. Now, if you want to do that, just go to... A, deeperwritersapologetics.com that's my site and when you're there you're there, there's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Writers Christian Ministries where you go there and you click that link and you get taken to Risen Jesus you go in my place, those are my in-laws Mike and Debbie Lacona and then you send a message to them and say hey aya I we'll make a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. You get in touch with them or me or Allie and tell us about it. And we'll make sure we give that donation and it will be tax deductible. You can also go on Amazon and buy ebooks that I have either written or co-written. Written is A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Co-written include books like defining inerrancy, God and natural disasters, Christian answers to this generation's questions, Godless, such. And guys, um, Dr. Marcos and I have been talking some about marriage. Some of you might not have realized this, but women tend to like jewelry. It ranks really high up there with them. And so what you can do is you can go and you can purchase jewelry through a friend of ours at the website. And you can get in touch with me if you want some help with it, but she said whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. <laughs> and guys, you know my saying about this. You can, you can purchase something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw up that you recently did with her. Or you can purchase something special of that lady in your life to make up for that screw up but I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please at least spread the word about the Deeper Waters podcast. Tell friends, share us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. And go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. You all have no idea how much it means to me to see these, uh, these positive reviews now uh, dr marcos do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to say that again do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to
0: I, I'll, I'll tell you one of the ones that that i donate to that i think is just amazing is what's called the jesus film project okay. uh, it's, it's it's part of i think it's, it's kind of a branch of the campus crusade for christ or crew but what they did is they took the gospel of luke and just made it into a straight movie, you know, just following the gospel exactly, no frills, although it's well done. And then that movie has been translated, I think, into about 5,000 languages now. It's unbelievable. And and it's always dubbed. And they go all around the world and they show this movie, often to cultures that have never seen a movie, certainly never heard something in their own heart language. Uh, and I, 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 as far as I can tell, it's the second greatest evangelical tool after the Bible of all time. It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the ones I like to give to.
1: Okay. And where do they go to
0: make a donation? The, I, the Jesus Film Project. If they, if they type that into the search engine, the Jesus Film Project uh, mm-hmm. is a really good. And they're, again, they just keep expanding and expanding into amazing places where the gospel hasn't reached
1: now let's go back to the book and there's another issue that we would we absolutely have to touch on today, and we kind of hinted at it some with realizing there are many many good things out there but Then you talked about that time also with the person who loses somewhere in 9-11 say where does God love right. one person more than all these others and that's it we can talk, be talking so much about things that are good true and beautiful and there are plenty of them out there some people say yeah but there are some things that are not good, that are not true, that are not beautiful. Pain is a real problem in our
0: world. <laughs> and, and and it is. Now, we should start, though, by saying that, and this, this will sound strange, but that in one sense, pain is a blessing. Let me explain that. Uh, Paul Brand, who's was yep. a famous uh, Christian missionary doctor, uh, discovered that what causes leprosy, or at least some forms of leprosy is that what leprosy does is it kills your central nervous system so you feel no pain. And the real reason that the bodies of lepers fall apart, fingers and stuff like that, is not because they fall off as we sometimes think. It's because if we didn't have pain sensors, we would literally wear away our body. We would put too much pressure, we would do things that hurt it. So in one sense, pain is a blessing, but We live in a broken world and sometimes physical pain gets broken and ends up, if you have cancer or something and you have unending pain, you need medication. But pain, as in and of itself, pain is a signal that there's something wrong with the body. But that signal can get broken because we live in a broken world. In the same way, it's very important to understand that guilt is also a signal guilt and even to a certain extent shame are good things because when we feel guilty it's because we've done something that hurts not so much our body but hurts our soul and the guilt will make us attend to it now we live in a broken world and so there are people that have you know whatever some some kind of form of traumatic stress and they have an unhealthy guilt and shame that they can't get rid of but in and of itself guilt and pain are actually protective mechanisms. But again, we live in a broken world and we live in a world that shows the product of misused free will. God made us as moral, ethical creatures. And this, it doesn't make a difference whether you're a predestination or free will. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God made us as moral, ethical creatures who must choose. That is not the way the rest of nature works. Uh, animals just follow their instinct. They don't do what they ought to do. They just do what natural instinct tells them. Now, sometimes we can train dogs to be a little bit better than they are in nature. right? But again, in the natural world, they do follow the laws of nature and instinct. But God made us as moral, ethical creatures who must choose to obey him. And our misuse of free will has ushered into the world a great deal of pain and suffering. Now, I'm not saying we we always have to be careful. It's not for us to say specifically, oh, God caused that pain, right? That's not for us. Jesus doesn't allow the disciples to do that. But we must understand that, that God does minister through our pain and through our loss. God's promise is not that I will deliver you from all pain and suffering and evil, but that I will be with you, that I will walk beside you in that. And ultimately, people always say, what's the answer to the problem of pain? I would say, ultimately, the answer to the problem of pain is the cross on which Jesus hung. Because it shows us that God was willing to take the full brunt of pain and suffering and evil upon himself and walk with us. I remember, I, I've never been able to find the, the origin of this, but I'm told that Mother Teresa was once asked by a rich businessman, and the, the man said to her, where is God when a baby, a child is dying in the street? And her answer supposedly was, God is with that child. The real question is, where are you? <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting comeback. Um, but but again, we, we cannot minimize pain and suffering, but we need to know that God warned us this would happen. You know, In other words, when you really read the Gospels, Jesus never says uh, success in life gospel. Oh, you're going to follow me and everybody's going to love you. In fact, he says more specifically, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I mean, there is going to be pain and suffering. We live in a broken world. But the promise is that God will be with us in the suffering and... He will minister to us and not abandon us. Now, there we're talking about the sort of pastoral problem of pain. What a lot of people, even Christians, don't understand is what we call the philosophical problem of pain has actually already been resolved. Okay, the philosophical problem of pain, which was stated again by Hume, although he's just completely quoting Epicurus and other other earlier people, is basically this. The Bible says that that God is all good and all-powerful. but the fact that but but the fact that we have pain either suggests that God's not powerful enough to change it or he's not good enough to want to change it. Now, a lot of people don't understand, but in you know sort of the academic philosophical circles, People don't really use the philosophical argument anymore because it was pretty much resolved by a famous living Christian uh, philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. Right. Uh, have you got him on? I don't know if you've no, had him on. Not yet. It, oh, you've got to get him on. He, he's, he's up there in age. I don't know if he – but, but it would be great if you could get him because he's so – but basically he just said that, that as in all philosophy, terminology is important, right? To say that God's all-powerful is not the same thing as saying God can do whatever he wants to. God doesn't do things that are impossible. God does not give us free will and take, us, take it away from us at the same time. That would be a logical contradiction even for God, right? God yeah. could, out of his power, will to give us a choice that will actually lead to pain and suffering if we misuse it. And in terms of goodness, again, we're taking for granted that good means He will always deliver us, but there are often reasons that God can use suffering to mature us. So we don't always know, and and you know Alvin Plantinga's philosophical argument doesn't demand that He give an answer for everything. He just needs to show that it's possible. And so, again, in the philosophical war, the academic philosophical world, they've sort of given up on the problem of pain as a way to attack Christianity. But it still carries a great deal of emotional force, right? Uh, because, again, who, who wants to suffer? We've all suffered. and We've seen people suffer. Um, but philosophically, that issue has been more or less dealt with. Uh, yeah. if, if, I, I would say though, if, if you've got listeners that really want to dig into this, C.S. Lewis's book, *The Problem of Pain*, is still one of the best and most accessible books dealing uh, with with pain uh, and 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 how God can use that. And that's a great book to read. I, t- I talked about it in my book a yeah. little bit. It's very good. Uh, also a, he basically says. But go ahead.
1: There's also Clay Jones's book, *Why Does God Allow Evil?* And yes, he's been on top. Oh, that's right. That book before.
0: Oh, he has been. Have you ever, have you ever gotten uh, uh, Philip? Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Philip. Uh, no, uh, I have not got Philip Yancey. Yancey. Have yet. you ever had Philip Yancey? Not yet. Yeah, he's yeah, he's pretty much in demand. But but Yancey's written a number of books. Actually, one of Philip Yancey's first books was written together with that missionary doctor I told you about, Paul Brand. Yeah. And it talks about the blessings of pain. <laughs> so that, that that he co-wrote it with the doctor. Uh, but he's written some very. Where is God when it hurts? He's he's one of the best writers. Uh, And of course, if if you really want to see how amazing God is, you read uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. That that poor woman, when she was young, is mostly paralyzed from the neck down and yet has this most amazing ministry. Uh, And she's written – Johnny has written her autobiography and and other books about how God can minister even through the worst kind of pain. Um,
1: Dr. Markov, we've been doing this through Facebook Live, and I've had a comment come in from my friend
0: Kirby Graham. Oh,
1: good. Tell Dr. Marcos hello for me. He says he works with his, with your son. Oh, he does. He works with
0: my son. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Both Kirby and my son, his name is Alex. They both Mm -hmm. teach at Geneva Classical School in Bernie, Texas. Bernie is right next to San Antonio. And it's a Mm classical Christian school. And they're not only colleagues. Both of them have been going through HBU's. Online Masters of Apologetics program. I think Kirby's just about done. My son just started, uh, and it's, it's a great program where you can work with people. Uh, you know, actually, one of our teachers is Mike Lacona, uh, who uh, you might have had him before. He's a great uh, yeah. writer on the uh, resurrection. I've had and him on, on the historicity F. of the Gospels.
1: Yeah, I, I think I know him somewhat. You know,
0: do you know Mike Lacona? Yeah, excellent. And my, my son just had a class with him. Um. Uh, he also had a class with Holly Ordway, who's a very good apologist. She does what's called yeah. imaginative apologetics, yeah. engaging our imagination and whatnot.
1: Yeah, Holly's been on the show. Oh, she has. Oh, good. I just
0: did a review of her book, uh, which is excellent, on, on cultural apologetics. Yeah.
1: And as for Mike Lacona, one of the reasons he's been on so many times for us is, I'm not sure if you have, remember this or realize this, but uh, I am married to his daughter.
0: Oh, that I, I, you know when you were talking there, I thought you said the name mike Lacona, but i thought i mis i misheard you okay oh that's wonderful yeah hes he's great. He's, he's one of our treasures at h b u wow wow and the uh, yeah well i mean he he was one of the he still writes in the resurrection, but lately he's done some excellent work showing the accuracy of the gospels uh, and he shows how you know. Again, people look at the gospel stories and find contradictions, but that's because they don't understand the genre of the gospels. Uh, and if they would read Plutarch, who's kind of a contemporary of the gospels, they would understand better. So, yeah, yeah my son just had a class with him. He no, wrote a really good uh, defense.
1: We've also had your colleague Jerry Wallace on twice
0: before. Oh, he's, got, he's one of my best friends. He's great. He's another C.S. Lewis scholar like me, too. Uh, he's, he's famous because he, he's, he's the Baptist who believes in purgatory. Yeah. He's the most famous for that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And,
0: you know, yeah, he's a great guy. He also teaches in the program. Yeah,
1: you know, when we uh, talk about the well, problem of evil, you know, I mean, I think we have to say when people come in and say, "What's the biggest argument against Christianity?" The best one, and I say, the problem of evil. Without a
0: doubt. Oh, I think I think it is because and, it touches us at the deepest yeah, root. It's
1: not because the problem of evil is intellectually difficult. It's just that when you are involved in suffering. That suffering can be very real and it can be very easy to overpower all the things that your right. head knows to be true.
0: It is. I, I would say that, you know, uh, you know, even if the philosophical issue of pain and evil has been more or less solved, the pastoral problem yeah. of evil will never be solved. I mean, until the world's over. I yeah. mean, we, we need to minister to others and people need to minister to us because again, we live in that world. And and like I said, we we need to understand, I think what helps the most is to understand that Christ suffers alongside us. He really understands. And one of the things that I think needs to be emphasized, okay, again, I go to a Baptist church, and if, if you're like at a Baptist church or any kind of like a Presbyterian church, every time Easter comes around, we have to get a sermon from some specialist who will explain to us in excruciating detail exactly how painful it is to die on the cross and it's absolutely right it's one of the most in fact the word excruciating means from the cross oh, it actually comes from crucifixion and, and and we need to be reminded of that but the problem with overemphasizing that is i tell you i tell you i really believe Nick, that if jesus were here and we asked him what was the worst part about good friday and the, and the whole thing I do not think he would say the physical pain. The physical pain didn't last very long. I think he would say the betrayal, the humiliation, being spat upon, being rejected, being humiliated. That, I I gotta get that because we we say pain, and again, physical pain is a terrible thing, but I would say much more people suffer from emotional pain, the pain of rejection, the pain of betrayal and guilt, and we need to understand that Jesus really, really identify And any of us that have been through some real emotional pain, when somebody says, I know how you're feeling, and we know that they don't, we get a little upset, right? But when Jesus says, I know what you're feeling, he means it. I mean, he was rejected and betrayed and spat upon. And and that's what we need to remember. Because, you know, our body does not remember physical pain. Like, like you, you might have broke your arm when you were a kid. You can't You remember that it hurt, but you don't relive that pain by remembering it. But if when you were a kid, let's say your father chewed you out and told you you were useless and horrible, he hated you, you will never forget that pain. In fact, if you start thinking about it 40 years later, your face will probably get red and you'll probably start to cry because emotional pain stays with us deeply. And and again, that's what's hard. And, And I mean, again... A lot of times we go through pain, but what we really struggle with is not the physical pain per se, but that sense of abandonment that goes with it. And again, Jesus himself <coughs> said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? There was that t- terrible moment when the father turned his, w- his face away from Jesus. So he knows what it is to face abandonment that we would call that existential despair today, a feeling you know, completely. And, and I'll tell you, the truth, you know, there was that crazy movie called uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, which is not accurate in any way, shape or form. But there's one aspect of that that we can learn from. And what it's trying to say, despite all the crazy blasphemy mixed in there, is that the last temptation Jesus faced is the temptation to think that everything he did was for naught and was useless. That one little thing is, is almost worth the movie, all, despite all the bad stuff. Because again, we face that temptation all the time. To think, the temptation is not to say, oh my gosh, pain, the temptation is to say that I am suffering pain in a meaningless world where nothing has meaning, there is no growth, there's no learning, there's no maturation, it's just pain in a world of pain and suffering and has no meaning. That I think is the most difficult thing to deal with, much more than the actual pain itself. And that's why we need to understand That, again, Christ has redeemed the world. He's identified completely with our suffering. And remember, now, I don't insist on this, but, you know, as a Baptist, one of our unique things, right, is that we practice baptism by immersion. Now, I don't think, you know, ultimately God cares that much whether we immerse or sprinkle. But I like the immersion part because it's a wonderful symbol of what the Bible says, and that is when we accept Christ as Savior, we literally die with him. And we are reborn with him. So I like that image of being buried in baptism. We we go under the water and then we resurrect with him. So we, we suffer and raise with him even as he did with us. And ultimately, if there's an answer to the problem of pain, it's right there. That our creator thinks us worthy enough to enter into our suffering and take the worst of it upon himself.
1: Wow. Yeah. Uh, I like what you said about emotional pain, because when I was in high school, in between my ninth and 10th grade years, just two months before I turned 16, I had uh-huh. major surgery done on my back due mm. to scoliosis. I had uh-huh. a steel rod placed on my spine. I can assure yeah. you that was incredibly painful, <laughs> and a year right. in recovery... Was very painful as well, <laughs> but later on in my high school years, I also started having depression and panic attacks. I would oh, rather have a surgery
0: again a depression and panic. Attacks interesting, and yep, painful. yep. There's, you know, it, it, it is, you know. Sometimes when you have pain in your back, you can at least find some position or something that gives you a little bit of relief. But when it's that deep. Horrible sense of emotional pain. You can't run from it. You know it's there, and and, and you know that's when we need. That's when we need fellowship. We need support. We can't do it alone. Yeah. You know we can't just sit home. We've got to get out. We've got to, We've got to. You know again fellowship with people.
1: Um,
0: we're not lone Christians. You it has know, been and, said: uh, if
1: you're depressed, one of the best things you can do is go knock on your neighbor's door and ask what you can do to help them.
0: Exactly. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that's the trouble. We, 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 you know, people just stay inside, and and uh, and unfortunately, you know, our, our modern technology, you know, allows a depressed person to just cut himself off from the world. I mean, everything we got. Heck, nowadays you don't even have to go shopping. Amazon will go shopping for you. So you really don't have to leave the house for anything. You don't have to leave your room, uh, and I mean that's bad for anybody, but somebody that's deeply depressed. It, it's like just digging yourself even more deeply and deeply in the pit, and you're right. Uh, help so, when when you're when you're suffering, help somebody else out, and it does bring a great deal of relief.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I, I first of all, you of realize great. again that you know. <laughs>
1: wow. I think one of the great benefits good. of Christianity also is that no suffering for a Christian is ever wasted. It is right, always the for good. I. I think about my depression, for instance. When I graduated from high school, I decided to go Uh. to Bible college. Didn't have much else I could do, but I knew the Bible (laughs) well. And I went to study there. And while at Bible college, that's when I discovered apologetics. (laughs) Now, in the past, I used to tell people, yeah, I hated the depression I went through, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it led me to apologetics. That's usually what I Uh. said. But I don't say that anymore, because when I started hmm. doing apologetics, I eventually got me going to Southern Evangelical Seminary. And while I'm at Southern Evangelical Seminary, I meet Gary Habermas, and we form a friendship. And yes, Gary. Oh, is. okay. And yes, Gary's been on the show a number of times. And Gary Habermas, one day, tells me about Mike, and he says, did you know he has a daughter? And because I was of that, just wondering, there we go, yeah. And because of that, that's how I ended up marrying her. So I say, yeah, um, depression led me to Bible college. Bible college led me to projects. Projects led me to my wife. It's a very good thing.
0: That's great. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, because, you know, Gary Gary, and Mike wrote the, 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 the great book about uh, the resurrection together. Yeah. Um, minimal facts and all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. And they, as, as you know, Gary Habermas himself has gone through great suffering because yep. he, he lost his wife. Yep. Um, uh, I don't know if it was a cancer, but he, he lost his wife to a disease. Cancer. And I remember because well, it was cancer. That's what I thought. Because you, you know the great books by Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Christ and The, you know, the Case for Faith. Yeah. And uh, I do an international Bible study at my home. In fact, I'm, I'm doing it tonight <laughs> once a month. And uh, last, the last year we went through the video series of The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. And uh, it includes all of this great um, special features. And in one of the special features, Gary Habermas gives his testimony of struggling with God through the loss of his wife. And it's very, very powerful. Uh, as he's just, you know, again, how, you know, God keeps saying to him again, do you trust me, Gary? Do you trust me? I go, yeah, I, I do God." it, but you know that. Do you trust me? It's very powerful. And, and you've probably, you probably heard him say it uh, yeah. on, your, on your program. Uh, mm. Again, just the naked honesty of the way we struggle with God, just like Job did and David and Abraham and all the great uh, uh, faith people, you know, they struggled with God, but yeah. in the end, we trust him. We, we bend the knee in the end, and we trust him. And by <laughs> Even when we, we don't understand.
1: We have had Gary and Mike on here together, in fact, to
0: discuss- Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. To
1: discuss questions I gathered on the resurrection, and sometimes we want to be working together Trying to get this in a book format for people out there. So be watching for that someday. Oh, uh, great. I-, I know of my own wife who goes through a lot of suffering with mental illnesses and such. I always tell her, honey, you just watch and see. Because I think God's going to redeem this suffering. I, said, I think you will have more impact on people than I will. Because I have arguments. And both can work. But you have a story, and a story is far more powerful today.
0: It, it is, it is, I and mean, you're right. Especially today, we, we we want a story. I mean, that's the the, the original Christian apologetic is the testimony, mm-hmm. and uh, and remember what I mean. It, one of the things that makes you an apostle is the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. They testified to the risen Christ. Now, in the case of your wife, I don't think she actually saw the risen Christ, unless she had a vision, but she is still testifying to the resurrection power of Christ in her life. So we are still witnesses of the resurrection and of its reality, not just philosophical, but its historical, its actual reality. (laughs) Uh, And one of the things that C.S. Lewis, more than anybody, helped us to understand is as Christians, reality is on our side. You know, when I grew up, all the atheists wanted us to believe that they have reality on there. side said, no, we're the ones that have reality. So I told you the problems with pornography and, the, and the, the, the romance novels the women read is that they are not real. That's the problem with it. God calls us into reality. Even when that reality includes suffering and pain, he calls us into reality, not into fantasy and illusion and wish fulfillment. He calls us into that which is real. And that's one of our testimonies, I think.
1: Of course, we have to say, and Harry Ordway would definitely agree with us. It doesn't mean our fantasy and such is wrong, right? Oh fantasy. yes, <laughs> but true fantasy should lead us to a great appreciation of reality and such. It's true, like, like my wife and I enjoy going to see the superhero movies together. Oh yes. yeah, I, I have a wife who would rather see superhero movies and James Bond movies and such than see chick flicks together, so all you other guys out there get jealous, okay? But those <laughs> should lead up, leave us, I think, with a sense of justice, in a sense of, that's true. what can I got, do to go out there and fight evil in my own way? That's proper, too.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that C.S. Lewis said, and I agree with him here, because I teach fantasy, too, he said that the real bad things they give kids to read are what he called the school stories oh, yeah. rather than fantasy. What he meant by that, you can probably remember that. School stories are, you know, the kid's picked on and then suddenly he gets back at everybody and becomes the, the head of the team or whatever. And he's saying the trouble with, with those stories is that they breed in the kids a kind of pride and arrogance and stuff like that. Whereas true fantasy, Narnia, Lord of the Rings, all these uh, true fantasy instills in you a sense of awe a sense of your own smallness but also your own value at the same time because we don't understand our value until we realize our smallness in the face of god and the mystery of the world um so fant- in that sense fantasy is more real fantasy brings us to the essence of who we are as creatures made in god's image but fallen it doesn't play to our uh you know our, our lowest common you know our, our envy and our bitterness and our uh, wanting to get back at everybody, as the school stories do. I mean, yeah. I mean it was so horrible. You know, I, I can sometimes be naive. Somebody told me that Oprah Winfrey had a book club, and I immediately said, oh, you mean she's got people reading the Odyssey? It's like, no, no, no. Uh, it, it seemed like every single book that Oprah had in her thing was some kind of victimization book. Yeah. And if you, all you ever do is think of yourself as a victim, it does not strengthen you. It just doesn't strengthen you. It weakens you uh, if you're always seeing yourself as a victim. Yeah. Um, so, my you're right, that's the best kind of fantasy. It's, it's great.
1: Yeah, my wife and I both have Asperger's, for instance, uh-huh. and it would be easy to play the victim card for me, but right. I choose to not do it. I choose to look her up and I can say, well, yes, I am on the spectrum. Now, here's what I'm doing, regardless, anyway. And Allie knows this very well about me, but if... Someone discovered a cure for Asperger's autism tomorrow and they were out giving mm-hmm. it out for free to anyone. I would say you take that and you keep it far away from me. I don't want it.
0: Huh. Huh. I interesting. Think it That's interesting. But that, because it, it's part of part of who you are and part of the way that God matured and grew you. It uh, gives
1: me an edge. To cast that thinking.
0: off is to lose.
1: Yeah, it gives me an edge, I think, in my thinking. I've had a Stephen Bedard on my show before, who's the artistic pastor, and Uh we discussed this a little bit, asking, will we still be like this in heaven someday? And we're both open to be a possibility of, yes, this will be part of our identity, still there. Now, if someone struggles with something that's painful for them and they can't manage it and such, I don't think it'll be part of their identity, because heaven is a place of joy and such, but if this is something that enhances us, I think it could very well still be part of our identity.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. Because it, 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 but God will take it and perfect it. And, and, uh, because you know, the the thing about us is we're all package deals. In other words, our strengths and weaknesses are completely tied together. I mean, I'll just give a a, a good example of this. One of the, the shames is a lot of times, you know, you hear stories about great missionaries or people that started a great Christian thing. And then at the end of their life, they, they sort of get stubborn and they, they resist it, and sometimes they end up having to take like the, like the guy that started Habitat for Humanity. In the end, they had to, they had to take the company away from him because he got so stubborn and whatnot. And that happened to some lots of famous missionaries. But what we, we forget about is that, you know we're, the way we are as people, that, that same stubbornness that caused them to mess up at the end of their life is the same stubbornness. That allowed them to start a mission field in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, we're, we're we're mixtures of the two, and it's very very difficult. And I think one of the the proper reasons of marriage is that we complement each other and help rub off each other's. Uh, I, I will tell you one of the most beautiful things: I heard, another person that has Aspergers is uh, Hugh Ross. Have you ever had Hugh Ross on? Three times I think so far,
1: and once
0: oh, his wife. Oh, I never I got to talk hear him about speak. In he, he's great because. Yeah, creator in the cosmos. Because I heard him speak. it was either first or second Baptist here in Houston. And he shared with us, again, maybe I don't know if it's exactly the same, but a kind of Asperger's. But what's wonderful is he explained, and I don't know if this is true of you, the role that his wife played in his life. Mm. You know, he'll ask hell her yeah. sometimes, you know, honey, did I come across as, you know, uncaring? And she'll tell him. You know, he'll look. To, in other words, he recognizes that, that, you know, he doesn't catch these signals, but she does, and he trusts her enough. To tell him, and I thought it was a wonderful testimony of, of how marriage works. To, to to we don't marriage doesn't change us, but we can we can rub off the rough edges on each other if the two will allow each other to do that. Yeah. Uh, sort of like two good friends as iron sharpens iron, so one friend sharpens another. But I think that happens in marriage as well and, and, uh, in the best kind of marriages. If anyone is interested
1: in that. And Hugh Ross was on here a few years ago by himself to talk about Asperger's, but I think it was last April we had him and his wife on together to tell that oh, wow. story. Oh, huh. wow. So you can go back and hear how they met, how they started dating, how, how they married, and how Kathy is such a huge benefit to Dr. Ross today.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Like I said, it stuck in my mind when he said that. That you know, this is the way it's supposed to work.
2: Because
0: yeah, <laughs> we all have rough edges. Yeah. It, <laughs> you know, it, 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 we all have like rough it. edges that need to be smoothed down. Uh. And, and again, people don't. They're like, well, you're not supposed to change your stuff. Well, you, you don't change them. Yeah. But you can help refine them. Again, yeah. as iron sharpens iron, uh, in the best scenario of that.
1: Well, I don't think we have time to ask another question here. So, tell you when the book. Is atheism on trial the Kindle version as of the time Kindle version is 999, paperback is 1347, and audio CD is 1998. Now, Dr. Marcos, do you have a blog, a website, an email way people can get in touch if they want to find out more?
0: Yeah, it's, it's loumarcos.com L O U M A R K O S dot com loumarcos.com. We'll take you there. And I gotta say uh, that I'm very excited, this is my first book that's been turned into an audio book. So it was really exciting to listen to somebody reading your book out loud. Uh, I brought a copy to my parents. I was just in Florida, just two days ago, visiting my parents. And, and the speaker's amazing. He just gets all the intonations right. And uh, anyway, that was really exciting. Harvest House is the publisher, and I've really, I've really enjoyed working with them. Hope to do more books with them.
1: And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for a deeper War's
0: audience? <laughs> just, again, uh, instead, You know, instead of just reading the textbooks, go back and read the original writers. Don't read a book about Plato or Aristotle. Go back and read them themselves. In translation, of course, read them themselves to see that this struggle has been going on for a long line. Tertullian is not an easy read, but go back and you'll see that all our early church fathers – Dealt with all the same heresies we're dealing with now and dealt with them pretty decisively. But because we forget and we don't read our old books, we have to fight the battle all over again.
2: <laughs>
1: well, Dr. Marcos, I'd like to thank you for uh, taking your time to go and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much. Love, love, love to come back.
1: Okay. Good time. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Brian Godwell on talking about. Uh, Resistant, the next book in his apocalypse series When we talk about eschatology For now, I'm Nick Peters And I'm signing off